welcome to Minute 74 of The Great Escape Minute, the daily podcast where we dig into The Great Escape one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me today is Luke Allen, host of the Love Rosie podcast and writer-director of the upcoming short film, Reduced to Clear. Welcome to the show, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's it's great to, to be here. It's a great movie, and you, you told me that, uh, that that you enjoyed it, so I figured I would invite you to come talk about it a yeah. little bit. So hopefully you'll have some interesting things to say about it. So, yeah, as we um, discuss this, I did. I did realize as soon as I put it on uh, the other day. I have seen it before, but so much in my head has got it mixed up and blended with Escape to Victory. I don't know whether that's something that's come up by they, other guests. I'm that has before, never but... come up, and that is the these movies are, in my opinion, black and white, completely different. People have said that to me before, but then other people have agreed. So, like, it seems, yeah. I've, I've, I've never heard that comparison before, but that's fine. That's We're looking for diverse opinions here anyway. So there were certain good. scenes I was expecting where I was like, oh, it's where they end in this. And I was like, no, that's, that's they, 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 football is not involved at all. Um, and which is there's no weird. Sylvester Stallone, there's no Michael Caine, and there's definitely no, no uh, Pelé. No, and it's so I, I will I will apologize if I get occasional uh, comments on the film wrong to the listeners that first of all I watched the, I watched the wrong minutes and second of all I rewatched the film in the background this week um, I'm mid exam season and this is a nice bit of escapism uh, oh no pun intended um, but it's yeah it's. I'm assuming that there'll be points where I'll get a character's name wrong or something. <laughs> but just as I will with my exams, I'm going to ramble and hope that something's worthwhile and gets me some marks. There you go. Episode 74 begins with Roger and Cedric pulling the rope frantically and goes all the way till we get to see Cavendish begin to carol. As we were discussing yesterday, basically we saw that Willie was, was in a, a cave-in. Danny ran or crawled down the, the tunnel in order to pull him out as quickly as possible and start dragging him back in order to try to save him. So this minute opens up with, uh, we see uh, Roger and Sedgwick sitting in the uh, way station. The, I think it's the first way station because you can see the ladder going up. So yes, it's the very first way station. And they begin to, to pull the rope in order for the trolley to come, come back with, with Willie on board. So they, they pull and they're, they're actually pulling a lot i mean these are Mm. not a these are not short distances you know i I would say it's got to be at least 50 feet if not Mm. more between each of these way stations you know when they're pulling things down what what do you think about that yeah it definitely felt like quite a large distance and it's quite i i did love with kind of all these sequences how how easy it is to picture the geography of everything in, in your own head like it's it's so it's almost so clear instantly from from watching it, just geographically where everything is. Yeah. I know that's probably a very it's what you hope from most films, but an awful lot of films get really confused in that, especially this kind of golden era thing I'm imagining when you've got when pretty much everything is a set. Yeah, and, and location. Yeah, location wise, they they do this. They set up this movie really really well. You you don't have to see the entire camp, but they they let you see so many locations within the camp that that you get an idea of where everything is and and the relative distance between the different places, you know. And and even this is a perfect example. I mean, they've they've told us before that that the length of the, of the whole tunnel is eventually supposed to be 335 feet. We we all know that that you know anyone who's seen the movie knows that that number is incorrect. But you know yeah. we're not going to discuss that at this point because that'll that'll come up much later, numerous times. 
but the idea is, is that you have these way stations along the way in order to, to give them, uh, I guess, room to breathe uh, at every particular, you know, at, at a certain distance. We, we don't know the distance. They never mention how far it is between each of these way stations. My assumption is it's somewhere between 50 and 100 feet. Yeah, I think I think that makes the most sense. Is like, because it, it obviously it needs to be a considerable distance apart, but also you don't want to risk getting stuck for too long in in one place, or you don't. Yeah, it's you you want it to be easy enough to go one at a time and to be able to to rescue when needs be. Right, and also you need to make it that when they eventually go, you know, when they eventually have the escape. So you need to have everything move smoothly also because you don't want to have too much of a backlog in one particular place. You want to have enough room to move people back and forth. And you, if you have all these different way stations, then you can have, let's say, five or maybe even ten people crammed into the way station yeah. waiting to, to go forward. I mean, they never even and show I, I that. Think, yeah, I think if you – I think similarly, if they were being chased through this sort of area, if they were being caught right at the start – it would be quite a hindrance for those chasing them as well to kind of be getting out and onto the next one. And then, like, it, it, it kind of slows them down, especially those who probably don't know it too well. Right. All they have to do is just pull out a gun and shoot. And then, they're, then, then it's, you know, the, the German guards won't have a problem if, after that point. If, uh, yeah. you know, if they are chasing them down the, the tunnel like this. Basically, they, Cedric pulls uh, Willie off of the, the trolley. You see he's completely covered in, in, in dirt. His, his whole face and head. And you see he's having trouble breathing. And then uh, Roger takes him and starts cleaning all this dirt out of his mouth. And then, thankfully, Danny at this point brings over a canteen to, to try to help him, you know, spit out whatever dirt has uh, gotten into his into his mouth, you know, along the way also. It's just pretty funny the way that they're, they're taking care of him at this point. Yeah. He looks like a little kid that they're taking care of. You know, a kid that fell in the sandbox or whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, definitely, and I, I yeah, it's it's just so kind of fascinating overall, kind of aesthetically as a film. And what I will say is, the version you sent over, I think, is a much better kind of remaster than the version I was watching. No, it's a criterion. Um, I, it's the Criterion Collection. Obviously, yeah. it doesn't doesn't get better than that. No, I I think I've got a really kind of old DVD of it because it was going from watching it on my TV to kind of watching these minutes. I was just like, oh, it's. <laughs> I can see what's going on now. Um, it's not as grainy. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't as much dirt on the screen. You know, yeah. Which, you know, Willie is just just spit when he's spitting out the water and dirt. So he's, uh, you know, the, the screen gets a little clogged up, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I like the way that he, he spits really far. Mm. You know, that, that, that amount of water that they give him. And then it's great because, like, Roger opens his mouth, opens Willie's mouth at some point where it looks like he's he's like a dentist. You know, just pulling mm. his mouth as open as wide as possible in order to to look inside. I mean, it's it's my my question is is why is he doing that? You know, like why yeah. would you open his mouth that much? He just you know just took a sip of water or a chug of water and spit it out. You know, you don't have to look. You can, he is an adult. You can you can let him you know get rid of whatever dirt he needs to on his own. Yeah. And um, whilst we only get like a little bit of it here, I've got to comment on the score. I think the score is amazing. Yes. And it's so fascinating to me how films get away with having that motif, which I don't think we get this minute, actually, but having that sort of motif, which we all know, and it not getting annoying. Like, it's it must be 
so difficult because I mean I found it similarly with some of the uh, with the films I've done on my shows, especially uh, Love Rosie and About Time. They have like a certain little motif in the score that is reused over and over and over again, but doesn't annoy you where where it so easily could. Well, because first of all, Elmer Bernstein is is an amazing composer, and I'm really shocked that he didn't get m- more accolades for the work that he did in this movie because the the score is is unbelievable. The way and that, just so iconic, like yes. I think the well, number now of it's iconic, but I'm yeah. talking about I'm talking about when it came out oh, in '63. Yeah, even back then, yeah. You know why it wouldn't have been, you know why why people didn't praise it at the time for what he did, because the 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 as you said the the theme stays the same throughout the entire movie, but it it changes because sometimes he's using different instruments to evoke different feelings about different things. Sometimes it's you know it it. It sounds like it's it's using he's using different percussions or things like that just to to change things around a little bit. But it's as you said, it's a, it's still the same, but it sounds very different each time. Yeah, which is when looking at like some of the shows that I've been doing at the moment, like um, Ralph Wagenmayer has a certain motif in Love Rosie, which I'm imagining pretty much all of your listeners will have not seen or heard of Love Rosie because it's a very small scale film. Well, now they, um, have, now they have the opportunity to go back and, and check it out. Yeah, def- definitely do. It's a beautiful, beautiful rom-com, but there's a certain thing in that which is kind of a do 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 and when especially when we're making notes and stuff is and watching it for the show i'm like this score's happening again and every time i hear it it makes me think i want to watch the entire film all the way through and i think bernstein does the same here that it's like the the moment the moment i hear that it makes me like even to the point of like hearing it at the end of the film when i just finished watching it it made me go I think I might watch this again, which I couldn't because I had to go to college for an exam. But it just brings so much joy and instantly makes you want to watch it, which is, I think, brilliant. <laughs> well, that, that, that's what you essentially want to do. You know, you, you mm. want to have a, a score. You want to have a movie that people are going to finish watching and they're going to be inspired to want to watch it again. Yeah, there's definitely two levels of composer as well because, inst- like, similarly... I think the comp- there's, there's certain greatness in the composers who you don't notice, who make you feel things without you realising they're making you feel things. Like, that's that's a separate art, and unfortunately they're never going to get as much appreciation or, or credit for it because they go unnoticed. But I, I think Bernstein, for, for the iconic scores, which still, like, they don't, you know, separate you, take you out of the film, but I think I think there is definitely two levels to score composing. Right. If uh, if anyone's interested in on the Criterion Collection, they actually have a commentary where Bernstein is one of the uh, the people on the commentary, so you can hear his thoughts on the on the score. I mean, obviously, it's not throughout the entire movie; it's uh, different sections where where he discusses things. But one of the things he also says is the important thing as as a composer is knowing what scenes don't need music, and the lack of yes. music says something also. Yes, and I've started to realise that from a filmmaker's perspective as well. It's like I, I made a film a couple of years ago called Unstable, had a brilliant composer, a guy called Ethan O'Mahony, working on that with me. And I, like, I sent him every scene, like pre- pretty much like we did it a scene at a time. So I sent him every scene as it was edited, and it's like, compose a score for this, compose a score for this. And pe- I love the film. People love the music from the film, but also it's very music-heavy. And so I'm now moving on to this current project I'm I'm doing, and it's like there's these 
these areas where there isn't music and it's so much more effective to just the the, the, the feeling of the silence either the comfort of silence or the lack of it the awkwardness and so yeah I think I definitely think that there is a lot of credit to go to not using music I mean like look at um, uh, look at Buffy for example like a massive Buffy fan the, the, the score of Buffy is great and yet the episode The Body uses no music whatsoever and because of how used to the music you are the lack of music is so emotionally powerful that it's wonderful yeah Completely. So, moving along in the minute. So now we actually get a little. Yeah, bit I'm of not entirely sure where I went on to Buffy from. No, that's okay. That's perfectly <laughs> okay. You'd be surprised where some of these conversations have gone. It's fine. Uh, that I I think that's part of the point of doing a movies by minute yeah. uh, podcast where where you can get off onto tangents and, it, and I mean, then afterwards on, afterwards you yeah. look at it and you say, wow, how did I get to that thing? And then you just. Bring yourself back. It de- and, uh, definitely, I know it is on mine, but whenever I'm guesting, I'm like, I don't know whether these are the guests that want to draw it back into the point or allow the tangents. And sometimes even when you cut the tangents, it just, imp- having had the tangent almost improves the rapport between host and guest or between hosts. Like, I completely yeah. agree. So basically at this point we get a little bit of, we actually get a little bit of criticism here from, from Willie. He says to Roger, you're going to have to shore up the whole bloody tunnel. Which is actually great, because earlier on, when Roger was making the plan, he basically said that they're going to skip most of the shoring up, and now we actually get to see you know, that, that uh, he actually made a mistake earlier by making, uh, by making that decision, and now we can understand what needs to be done in order to correct that mistake. Yeah. And then he basically says, well, you got to do all 335 feet of it, which... Again, goes back to what we were saying before. You know, everyone's got this number wrong at this point. You know, Cavendish mm. starts off. You have, you know, I'm going to once again give a shout out to uh, Jay Cluett when who was who's the guest on uh, the second week. You know, he pointed out the fact that Cavendish is the character who causes the most trouble out of anything. And if you want to find a villain in this uh, movie, it's Cavendish because he's the one who doesn't do the proper survey and gets the the 20 feet wrong. Uh, sorry about the spoiler for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about yet. Obviously, he's also the one who makes the noise and falls on his package, which eventually alerts the guards to the fact that there is a uh, uh, an escape going on. So I, I just like the fact that, that they referenced the, the 335 feet right now. Yeah. At this point, Danny then also gives his criticism, and he says, you know, four times today, boom. You know, I, <laughs> it's nice that he does a little sound effect there to to show, you know, that the, the type of sound that happens when uh, you get an avalanche of dirt falling on top of you. Yeah. You know, the, the question that I have is, is what is the norm? Like, what do you, what would they, what do they expect when they're digging? You know, how often during the day do they expect that there's going to be cave-ins? Mm. You know, obviously in an ideal situation, they're not going to have any, but, but, you know, they're, they're not professionals and they're, they're not using professional methods you know, it's, it's all yeah, and nothing, nothing about what they've had has expressed that it's ideal at all. Correct. Exactly. Which, yeah, it's, it's so... So when he's complaining about four times, is that because usually it only happens twice? Or is he saying usually it doesn't happen at all? Yeah. Or, or is he saying usually it happens three times and this time it happened four? You know, there's, there's no way... But I, I, I do like, with stuff like that as well in film, that where it... It almost establishes conversations that you've not heard, and instantly yeah. it's like world building, which is Correct. just so great because it's it's so easy 
as a writer to do that, to just throw in like the exposition and be like, here's every scene. And I guess, I guess in a way, it's the wonderful thing about even if you you write it and then delete that conversation afterwards. It's like the, not everything that happens in these characters' lives is ever going to be everything that you see as a viewer. And I, I think that it, it shows great screenwriting to be able to subtly imply other exchanges. Yeah. Then Danny continues with his complaints, and he says, "Well, if we're going to keep going through this, we're just we're not going we're never going to be able to get through. This isn't going to work." And he says, "We need more wood." I, I love Charles Bronson's performance in this movie. Mm. You know, he he plays the the immigrant you know Polish character quite well. You know he's yeah quite agitated at this point where you know we just need you to get us more wood, and you know. So at this point, Roger now needs to, to figure out how he's going to do that. And then Sedgwick gets his say, and he basically says, well, <laughs> that's a lot of timber. Is there a way that you can get it? And at this point, Roger uh, promises that, that he will get it. There's there's no way about it. We're going to have to get it. And he says, I'll put Henley on it. And the new man we got this morning. Now, obviously, he's going to put Henley on it because Henley's a scrounger. That's his job. Yeah, you know Henley's the the guy who, when you need something, you 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 go to. He's your he's he's your uh, red from Shawshank. You know he's the guy that when you need something, you know who you're going to go to, and he's gonna he's gonna he's gonna follow through with whatever he needs. You know he was able to get the pickaxe. He was able to to get the camera. Earlier this week we we discussed that. You know there's there's all these different things that he's able to. Uh, obviously got the wallet also. So he's he's the guy. Yeah, and I think I think that. You know the the donor is like a typical character among like props film theory yes. is like and and that's exactly who he is preparing you know the characters for their quest per se and I th- I think it is you know it's it's obviously one of many and I'm not going to try and like assign all the characters to props film theory because I'm not going to pretend that I have done that much research into the film um, and that my A-level film knowledge is quite as good as it should be in places but I, I think it, it is fascinating sometimes almost seeing these character types in some of their earliest forms in, in a way um, and I, yeah it, it's it's just lovely and I, I with you talking about everyone's role I do love the fact that in the end credits it's both their name and their role yes yeah, they do that really well because it, uh, we've discussed this numerous times that this feels like a heist movie. Yes. You know, that everyone has their set job that, that they have to take care of. And, and that's what this movie basically establishes, as you said, in the end credits, where, where each of them are given their roles. You know, well, I we, did, yeah. I came out of this I want to watch King. Italian Job. Like, I, there were hints at it where I was like, I want to go watch Italian Job now. So, yeah, there's definitely heist movie vibes. Yeah, completely. And I, I love the way that he says that he's going to put Henley on it and the new man we got this morning. You know, and, yeah. you know, anyone who, who saw, you know, the minutes up until now, so we know who that new man is. That new man is actually Hiltz. Which mm. is, it's funny that, that he is a character who apparently nobody knows. Yeah. You know, he's made so many escape attempts. He's He's been in different uh, prison camps along the way. Uh, obviously, Goff knows knows him. No one else apparently knows him, but Goff. But still, when you when you look at it, they they still refer to him as the new man. So it's it's pretty funny because he's new to the to the X organization. That's uh, that's what they're they're getting at here, basically. Mm. Yeah. Then we basically finish off the minute with uh, get a, a few seconds of Cavendish as we 
discussed uh, earlier, you know, about... Actually, one thing, I just want to say one other thing beforehand. Uh, as the scene ends, Roger then basically says to Willie, okay, I'll take care of it. And then he, uh, like, tussles Willie's hair. Which mm. again goes back to the point where Roger must feel like he's a, a father figure here. You know, yeah, it before, gave me... Their, their relationship gave me real, like, of mice and men vibes. Um, and I'm trying to, I, I, I'm trying to remember no, the other I characters. No, I, I don't know if I would, I would go There's, that far like, because he's not, not, not like Lenny. Yeah, you know, it's not, well, uh, it wasn't to that extreme, but there were certain elements with like how he was looking after him where I was like, this really does feel like how they were looking after them. And I've completely forgotten the, uh, the other character in the Vice of Men's name, <laughs> but it's, <clears throat> there, there were little hints of it where I was, it, it was just a vague kind of reminding. Um, right. but not, right. not, not enough for me to, have made a comment unless you'd um, brought it up. But, yeah. No, I mean the the fact is is it just it it it's a very strange way for him to to, to touch him. Yeah. You know that that that's the the point that I wanted to really make here. And then we 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 get that that final few seconds where we we get to see Cavendish begin his rendition of of the first day of on the the twelve days of Christmas. Mm. You know he starts starts with his singing on the first day of Christmas and. Uh, you know, then it gets cut off. People will have to come back tomorrow to actually understand where that goes. Is is there anything else that you wanted to discuss about? First of all, about this minute. Uh, nothing. Nothing else specifically about, this minute, about this minute. But I, I have a couple of. Okay. Well, what about the movie yeah. on a on a on a whole? What, what else would you like? So to anyone who's heard me on other shows would know my fascination with uh, classification, censorship, and all of that stuff. Um, so this was. Uh, a thing which I wanted to look into, which was how the film was originally rated in the UK. And so, first of all, um, it was originally rated U in 1963, which I think is basically the equivalent of your G. Um, and it's now rated PG for mild violence, language, and injury detail. Um, but the BBFC website, BBFC, to those who don't know, is the British Board of Film Classification, uh, have, give, have given a little breakdown which I, I love. I got one of my films rated by them at one point, and the breakdown as to why it fits a certain category is just lovely and fascinating. And one of the many reasons in which I prefer the way our BBFC thing, uh, do things over the MPAA. But, uh, yeah, I, I also don't think many people are going to be arguing with me and defending the MPAA either. Uh, but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, probably not. Um, so, uh, violence. They say uh, several people are shot, all without visible blood or injury detail. One of the shootings leaves a dead man hanging limply from barbed wire. A group of prisoners is massacred, but the actual killings occur off-screen. Obviously, cut things out if you don't want, like, the spoilers for your later minutes. Um, no, that's uh, fine. I, I'm assuming that most people have seen this. So, it being a uh, true story as well. Like, it's, yeah. Um, language, there's occasional use of mild bad language. Once again, being a true story, but but those the most most of the things that happen here are yeah, not based yeah. on truth. So, you know, Ives is not a true true not based on a true character or a true event. Mm. It is he is based on a true character. There was a character named Piglet who Ives is is uh, modeled after. You know, he he the stories are very different between what they do in this movie and what what happened in the real uh, uh, the real escape. So, yeah, there's occasional use of mild bad language, including bloody, 
And then injury detail, we see a large smudge of blood on a man's face after a plane crash. Another man is shown with small bloody cuts on his face and arms. Occasional scenes of mild suspense featuring people in danger, and several characters are also shown smoking as a kind of, like, extra note. Um, but it does fascinate me, actually, this was ever rated U, because, like, just some of the, the violence, like, it's only just post-Haze Code. So, like, this is, some of this is quite strong. Um, to be classified for all audiences um, in 1963. Right. Okay. That is very interesting. I, I mean, I, I believe that this is the type of movie that that you can show to kids. I think it is. You know, but not, I can't imagine so much. Most time. people that I've spoken to have seen it when yeah. they were a kid. You know, I I saw it when I was a kid, and the the amount of violence in this movie is is not at a level where it's going to be scary for kids. Yeah, it's very matter of fact and it's not over the top. But I think almost it's it's mere presence. I could imagine early BBFC getting concerned by. But I don't know. It's um I yeah, I think it's a film that people definitely watch. I think I don't know whether it's the case in America, but like this film's on like every Christmas. It's not even really a Christmas movie, but it's on Christmas time every year. Well, you know, Kevin just Yeah, I mean, this scene specifically, right now, obviously, so. but I mean like yeah. Tonally throughout, <laughs> I'd say this this is on TV more over Christmas than what I would consider my favourite Christmas movie being Lethal Weapon. Uh, that's not on as much over Christmas when it should be because it's. A... No, I, I, Die Hard is a better uh, Christmas mm. movie in my opinion. Uh, agree to disagree. Lethal Weapon is, is high up yeah. there. I, I do agree. I, well, I, I do. Uh, um, um, when it hits Christmas season, I do like I start with Lethal Weapon and I do like a slow progression into like the increasing Christmasiness. Um, so I kind of start like mid-November with Lethal Weapon and then move up the Christmasiness scale um, because I'm stupidly organised like that. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's it's fun. And listeners of my early of my uh, first podcast series, please be seated, will know my fascination with the UK uh, Christmas films, the Nativity franchise about school kids doing nativity plays and they're trashy and cringy and cheesy but also some of the most lovely things I've ever watched um, so yeah okay. that's, there's, a, there's a random plug for a show that doesn't exist anymore um, <laughs> although, I, although I do it doesn't exist It doesn't exist because it hasn't continued well, or you yeah sorry because it. Yeah, it hasn't continued but I, we, we do do I, I, I'm thinking of bringing it back every Christmas just to go through those movies because I really like every year getting because there's like so many of these there's so many sequels every year it's one of the most British films ever and everyone in Britain has seen it countless times but I just love like inviting American podcasters to watch it and try and understand like where we get the joy out of it because it's just cheesy and it's almost entirely improvised by children like it's it's yeah but there was a, there was a random sense. tangent uh, but there we go Another one, yeah. which is fine. As I said, that's completely fine. So is there anything else you want to say about that? I, I don't think so. Just overall, really enjoyed it. Um, I think because I had it on more in the background, it did make me want to like properly try and sit down and watch it and dedicate full focus to it when I can. Um, oh, one of my notes was just about it being produced by United Artists um, because obviously that was a, a company that was co-started by Charlie Chaplin. Um, and that's interesting, <laughs> but that that was pretty much the extent of it. Was I read United Artists and I was like, oh, Charlie Chaplin, but uh, there's no. Yeah, I don't think Charlie Chaplin. Is no, I, I I checked. <laughs> I was like, did he have like a producer credit or anything? But no. 
he was in, I think, Switzerland at the time, right? Uh, possibly, Something yeah. Like My film history isn't as good as it should be, um, but yeah. Right. All right, great. Do you want to tell people how they can uh, get in touch with Yeah, you? okay. So you can find me on Twitter at llama underscore bottle zero. It's an old account. I made it when I was like 12, but that's my at now. Got it on 500 business cards, so it's sticking. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the ginger Luke, on Facebook at Luke Allen Film. Everything I do is over at lukeallen.co.uk. Uh, you can also find stuff that I do on like IMDb and Podchaser. Um, Notably, the upcoming film, uh, upcoming comedy film, uh, Reduced to Clear, which is a short film that I co-write and co-directing, uh, filming in the future at this point, uh, but will have filmed uh, by the time you listen to this, which is kind of terrifying because I got a lot more pre-production to do. Um, but it's uh, we shoot we're shooting that in August, and probably maybe we'll have a, a, a trailer out soon. To the point you're listening, maybe a couple of weeks from now we'll have something like that out. Who knows? Uh, it's just a very silly movie set in a thrift store about all things going wrong, featuring many familiar faces from British comedy that for most American listeners, you'll have no idea who they are. But just just trust me there. Trust me, it's cool. Um, and yeah, I think I think that's that, that's it. Thanks, thanks for having me on. My plugs are very long there. Feel free to trim them, cut them. Uh, no, no need to trim them at all. We want people to go there and just... You, you need to promote yourself also. That's fine. While you're going and looking at all of Luke's stuff, you can go rate, review, and subscribe on any podcatcher they might be using to listen to our show. You can send us an email, thegreatminute at gmail.com. Our Facebook group is The Cooler. Our website is thegreatescapeminute.com. And our Twitter account is greatescapemxm. So, until uh, tomorrow, tally-ho. Tally-ho. Tally-ho.